Welcome to Let's Reinvent School with Ross Danis. Take your assigned seats and listen close as the next hour will have you rethinking the public education system while you listen to Ross and his guests share their expertise and experiences in the field. Class is in session. Here is your host, Ross Danis. Hello, everyone. Let's Reinvent School is a weekly radio program focused on reinventing public education so that all young people, regardless of race, gender, zip code, class, are prepared for their future and not our past. We're not going to focus today on what's wrong. Together, we're going to focus on what's possible. Yes, I'm your host, Ross Dance, President and CEO of MechEd, and I'm going to give you a little bit of background of, of why we're doing this and um, my own experiences with education reform. So I started as a reform-minded teacher in the 70s and helped open a non-graded high school. Uh, in the 80s, I was in teaching teachers instructional theory. In the 90s, I was a K-8 principal that held a, had a multi-age program as a companion to a single-graded program. And, and then in the um, late 90s, uh, deputy superintendent in charge of academics and a limited ability grouping across an entire district. Finally ended up at the Geraldine R. Dodge Foundation, where my job for the next 10 years was to travel the country looking for imaginative people and ideas in education to make change, substantive change. And I'm here to tell you, after 43 years, not much has changed. Uh, well, maybe one thing. I mean, there's been, you know, whole language came and went, Common Core came and went, uh, you, critical thinking, oh, we did that in the 80s. We don't do that anymore. We do cooperative learning now. So the one thing I can say that has changed is that we've narrowed the definition of literacy. We've eviscerated the arts. We've eviscerated civics education, we've eviscerated critical thinking in our schools solely because we're, we're measuring what we can measure and math and reading have been, you know, primary. Um, and even that it's, we, we measure the minimum. So it's no child left untested. I mean, no child left behind that I think has contributed to the problem. But today we're talking about, um, parents and how, how parents can help improve our schools and, I have to say I'm, I'm so grateful for our first guest, very special that she's here. We'll be here, by the way, for 13 weeks in a row. It's my pleasure to introduce you to our first guest, Dr. Pamela Grundy. Dr. Grundy is a writer, historian, education activist, and butterfly gardener. She lives in Charlotte, North Carolina. In 2008, she was named White House Champion of Change for her work to reintegrate Shamrock Gardens Elementary School, work that has has forged a different path for, from the test-focused urgency of the errors prevailing efforts at school reform, what we were just talking about. So more of our endeavors can be found on our Seen from the Rock blog about our activities at Shamrock and on the website for, for her book, Color and Character, which deals with segregation, desegregation, and the resegregation at West Charlotte High School. She recently published Legacy, Three Centuries of Black History in Charlotte, North Carolina. Responding to our conversation in our last segment will be members of the Education Subcommittee of the Reimagine America Project. And uh, I'll introduce them just uh, briefly right now, and we'll hear from them later. Kevin Woodson, Deb Blackwood, uh, Joanne Jenkins, Smith Turner. Thank you all for being with us today. So, Pamela, of all of the inspired stories that I've heard 
uh, here in Charlotte, yours, yours ranks high among them. What happened at Shamrock Gardens is just extraordinary, and I'd like you to give our listeners a little bit of background. Well, sure. Um, Shamrock Gardens uh, was a school that opened in the uh, mid-1950s as a school for white children. We had segregation then, so there were white schools and black schools, uh, and it was in the middle of a growing neighborhood, uh, growing sort of semi-suburban white neighborhood. Uh, then when um, Charlotte began to desegregate, uh, it was paired with a school on the west side and became integrated. And what happened at that time was that the area around Shamrock, because of urban renewal, which essentially bulldozed a black community in the center of the city and sent people sort of out to the uh, to the more nearby communities through efforts such as blockbusting and all sorts of, of uh, really problematic problematic things. Uh, that area became more and more uh, African American, and also these were uh, lower income folks. So the nature of the children at the school changed, and essentially what happened was the school was largely abandoned by CMS. Uh, it was allowed to deteriorate. Physically, I may interrupt CMS is Char- Charlotte Mecklenburg Schools. Charlotte Mecklenburg Schools, right? Uh, it was essentially allowed to deteriorate physically. There was a state uh, group that came in to look at schools in Charlotte, and uh, basically they came out of Shamrock shocked at what they had seen. And one of the members, all they could say was, "I just have to say that I'm thankful my child doesn't have to attend the school because there was mold, the carpet in the library was put together with duct tape. It had been." essentially abandoned uh, as Charlotte built new schools out in the suburbs and focused on schools, frankly, that had more powerful parents telling the system what their schools needed. Mm-hmm. Um, I happened, We happened to live in the neighborhood that was assigned to Shamrock, became assigned to Shamrock. It's too complicated to, to explain, but essentially uh, we were in a middle-class neighborhood assigned to Shamrock. Uh, at the time that Charlotte completely, ab- well, was forced to abandon its busing for desegregation plan and schools resegregated dramatically. Uh, when our son reached the age of kindergarten, I my husband and I didn't want to be part of the problem. We didn't want to run away from a school like Shamrock uh, because we could see that the children there were not getting the education that they deserved and the education that existed in many other schools within the same district in Charlotte. So So, remind us again for our listeners, what year are we talking about now? Well, essentially what happened in Charlotte in 1969, there was a court order that uh, the school, the Charlotte Mecklenburg schools had to completely desegregate its school system. And as a result, they ended up instituting the most uh, comprehensive busing for desegregation plan and were the most desegregated major school system for about 25 years. And, and there I recall that was a, everybody in the country knew about this. I knew about it. Well, it was the most successful and it was, you know, it was a flagship uh, West Charlotte High School which uh, the historically black high school I've written a book about uh, was a flagship for the flagship. It was an extraordinary school. Uh, and, but then 
for a variety of reasons. A new lawsuit was filed in 1997, and by 2003, a new judge had ruled that Charlotte could no longer use race for for uh, school assignment. This is judge and what Potter. happened? Excuse me, Judge Potter. That was Judge Potter, and again, I don't want to get into all the details of that. Uh, we could do that on another time if you want. But essentially, um, what happened was, although the schools had been desegregated due to lots of financial issues and and uh, redlining and uh, inadequate loan provisions, particularly for African American families, the schools had desegregated neighborhoods had not. So when busing stopped you ended up with a large number of schools, Shamrock being one of them, uh, that were high minority and high poverty because that's who lived near them. And because anyone who had resources, such as the families in our neighborhood who were assigned to Shamrock but went to private schools or charter schools or magnet schools or just moved away, didn't go. So you had a lot of schools with very high needs populations and very little political clout downtown because they didn't have the parents, frankly, that the people running the school system listened to. So So. in your case, you led this charge as a parent. Yeah, we just... What I'm saying is you didn't run. No, we decided that, um, yeah, that we could do this and it appeared that we'd be able to make a difference for those kids who were there. Mm-hmm. Because I think it's very interesting. One of the, what we, the way we did it was partly through creating a partial gifted program mm-hmm. uh, so that there would be a guarantee that there would be advanced learning at the school. But because Shamrock had, you know, just a terrible reputation, Nobody signed up, almost nobody signed up for the first year. So what the school did, there was a gifted class. They just went through the students who were already there because there were plenty of smart students at that school. It's not like the students weren't smart. It's not like the students weren't ready for a better, more comprehensive education. They just weren't getting it. So they went through and they picked out students that were ready to fly high. And they did. And I think that that is very important. A lot of the progress we made really was not about, it wasn't like the school got better because all of a sudden all these middle-class parents came because, or, you know, the test scores didn't get better because all these middle-class parents came. Uh, It improved because we were able to put in place the kinds of programs that went beyond the test scores. And you have to realize when this happened, I mean, this was the height of No Child Left Behind. Mm-hmm. Schools were being sanctioned right and left. And Shamrock was basically on the verge of having, you know, not made the test score so many times that, you know, it could very easily have been closed. Mm-hmm. And so uh, you know, what we were really trying to do was fight against that and say, obviously, children need to learn to read and they need to learn to do math. The tests don't necessarily show how well they're doing it, plus they need all of these other things as well. I mean, this was the era where a lot of schools basically, you know, paid no attention to art, played no attention to music, did not do field trips, and all they did was drill kids in what they needed to know to pass the tests, which was not particularly joyful or interesting for the children, and which led to tremendous teacher turnover because there was stress, 
because it wasn't that they, you know, it wasn't a situation in which as a teacher, you could really be successful. And so there was tremendous turnover, which was a, a huge, a huge problem at the school. I can see how it becomes like a bifurcated system where if you're not reading on grade level by age nine, you get to be remediated or skill and drill worksheets mm-hmm. while other kids do, are doing plays and simulation activities. Exactly. Interesting things. The world begins to divide and all of a sudden some of you are in algebra in eighth grade, some of you aren't. And it changes the entire trajectory of your of your school experience. Well, and it does. And frankly, drill and kill is boring. Mm-hmm. And so kids don't like school right. because it's born. But the pre- the pressure is on the teachers. Again, if this is what you're told you're supposed to do and you do it and the kids don't pass a test, you can say, well, I did what you said to do. I mean, you know, there's an out. Whereas if you try new and creative and more interesting things and the kids' test scores still don't necessarily improve, then you get whacked for, well, why did you deviate from the program? I mean, it's a, it's a really ugly loop that was just happening all the time. And again, the other thing you would do, and again, the teachers would do this because that was what all the pressure was to do. You focused all your attention on those kids who were just below passing. Right. So if you could boost them up to the kids who were fine, you didn't pay attention to the kids who were not succeeding at all, and you knew would never pass a test, you didn't pay attention to either. Again, and the teachers knew this and they hated it, which is why they would leave. Yeah. Because it wasn't that they didn't care. It wasn't that they didn't know what was happening. It was that all the pressure was to just get as many kids as you could just barely above the test. And I know that we're talking about Shamrock Gardens in Charlotte, North Carolina, but this could be taking place in schools all across the country. Where, right, where you uh, you sort of define these test scores as being important. And you're absolutely right. I know examples of kids who are just below uh, scoring well, who get all of the tutoring because mm-hmm. it's yeah. like uh, it pays off. Right. And then the school gets to go from a D school to an, a C school or a B school because you judge it based on the whole, not just one, not just the students there, but the right. entire and it's just completely anti what education should be. Exactly. So in a moment, in, we're going to go to a break in just a, a moment. When we come back, I want to talk about what it should be. Like, let's talk about what's possible because you, mm-hmm. I give you so much credit because I, I don't know as a parent, if I would have you not only stuck it out and decided to change, but you know, your son, your son went there. And I would like to talk a little bit about what, you know, he's doing these days and how, how you fared because not many parents would, would feel like they're going to experiment, you know, with their child. How do you feel about that? Well, I will say it was a marvelous experience from start to finish. Okay. There were wonderful people. There were wonderful families. There were wonderful children. It was a world that otherwise I and my son and my husband would not have had a chance okay. to engage with. So... So it was, it was great. You know, people say, I mean, I wouldn't have sacrificed my child. I would not have sent my child to a school where he was miserable or not learning or anything like that. I mean, I wouldn't have done that. But again, this was a place where if you made some changes, if you did some of the things that kids really need, all the kids were ready for that. And it was a place where wonderful things could happen. Mm -hmm. So that's, um, 
you know, that's what that experience was. It was the best day, best decision we ever made as a family. It's fantastic. It really was. So as you know, uh, I'm the president and CEO of MECED, a nonprofit here in Charlotte, North Carolina, where we both live. Uh, in the first of two breaks, we're at, we are going to learn a little bit more about MECED, what we do and why, and perhaps even how folks can donate. So we'll, we'll see you on the other side. Thank you. MechEd's been around since 1991. We're here to serve young people in Mecklenburg County, and we're here uh, to make sure that they have the experiences, the knowledge, the skills that they are going to need to thrive in life. Young people spend only 20% of their time in school. 80% of their life is spent outside of school. And we want to make sure that we recognize that education doesn't just equal school. We learn in all different kinds of places and different ways. With after school, you're hitting on academics, you're hitting on the things that they might not have during regular school. So like you have visual art, dance, theater, coding. They still get to do with their friends at school, with people who are just like them. Some of them don't even know they could dance. They didn't know, some of them don't know that they can draw. Um, so we try to bring those things out of them that they don't even know that they're capable of. But we've really enjoyed the support and appreciated the support from Charlotte Next and MacEd, not just in um, financial assistance, but also just giving us assistance and support along the way to get the programs up and running. Not every student has the opportunity to experience and, and participate in in-school or out-of-school activities. They have so many demands on themselves. And MECED opens that door to those students. Every student is different, and what MECED does a fabulous job of is meeting that student where they are. My experiences with MECED, uh, they put me in an internship at the hospital for two years. I think I think I do think MECAD is invested in me um, living my dream. They want the best for each and every one of their students, and it's like they won't go down without a fight. <laughs> so MECAD means opportunity, family, friendship. I am a healthcare tech at Atrium Health University in the Maternity Center. Uh, career Pathways. We work with underserved high school students. We put them in internships at 135 different businesses and industries around Mecklenburg County. It's, it's a powerful economic mobility machine. The experience with Career Pathways, it made me more determined. That's how I got my job at Atrium, because I volunteered for four years at the hospital. So it made me get connections, and, and they said, I'll, I'll give you a call. With um, the students that we've had, the preparation that they had, through Career Pathways was just exceptional. Honestly, I don't know what I would would do without Career Pathways. Like, I don't want to see it. Like, it's not, I don't know. Having someone to talk to and a shoulder to cry on, you know. Different family. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Welcome back from recess to Let's Reinvent School with Ross Danis. Got your thinking cap on today? 
We're going to teach you how to reinvent the public education system. Want to raise your hand and join us on the show? Call in to 866-472-5788. Now back to the show. Here again is Ross Danis. Welcome back, everyone, to Let's Reinvent School. Today with historian, author, and activist, Dr. Pamela Grundy. Uh, I was reminded when I heard about recess just on the uh, coming back from the break that, you know, the only federally mandated curriculum in our schools, gym. Interesting. <laughs> for real. Jim, phys ed. And it has to do with our soldiers not being ready, being prepared for war at World War One. World War One, yep, yep. That the, was uh, right? very interesting. And it really is about, I mean, speaking about that, how uh, schools are supposed to prepare young people for whatever world uh, the folks who are doing the curriculum imagines exists and the particular place that those young people are supposed to play. Of course, in the South, you have the the story of uh, after uh, the beginning of the 20th century with disfranchisement and Jim Crow, of course, school systems made deliberately separate and unequal, mitigated to a degree by Black teachers who really went way above and beyond and created schools that were much more than, than the system meant for them to be. But, you know, schools are about what you're trying to prepare young people for. And so part of the imagination has to be, well, what are you looking at? You know, what do you imagine in the future? So I think that's, you know, they didn't have phys ed. And then all of a sudden, like, oh, young people need to have, you know, be healthier. Mm -hmm. So they put it in the schools. Yeah. And, you know, uh, interesting you would say that because we started by talking about how we've narrowed the definition of literacy. Just at a time when the stakes have, are so outrageously high uh, to be critical thinkers, it's a complicated, dangerous, multilogical, multinational world we're we're raising children in, and it's going to take more than much more than what we're doing right now. Well, I think absolutely, and again, that's what we really try to do. I mean, what we wanted to do was make Shamrock a joyful place where people wanted to be and where they felt that they were accomplishing things. And that was from the students to the staff to, you know, everybody, including, you know, the cafeteria manager and the custodians and everybody. And the way that you do that is by creating joyful activities that you also learn from. And the gardens that we put in place were really one of those. I mean, I think that was really our signature program. We created all these gardens across the school uh, done with, you know, volunteer, a little grant money, but basically volunteer labor, mostly parents, uh, those parents who had time. And so the kids were surrounded by nature. We instituted a really wonderful uh, butterfly raising program and, um, and did also, we did engineering as elementary. We brought in engineering. We grew vegetables. We did, uh, we, um, kids learned to cook. I mean, all of these things that create joy and expand your mind and, and help you to learn. Mm-hmm. Um, and lo and behold, as we were doing all these things, you know, test scores improved. And they didn't improve because, again, we brought in a bunch of middle-class kids it was basically the same group of kids, but 
you know, things were, you know, it was a place you wanted to be. There was more, you know, more joy. And the other thing that that made possible was that we stabilized the teaching staff. We basically had an old style principal who'd been a principal for 30 years and believed that his job as principal was to support his teachers. And he did that. So when we started at Shamrock, when my son started in kindergarten, most of the teachers were like first or second year out of school because that's who Shamrock got because, you know, you had this constant turnover, but because they didn't turn over, by the time my son left, there were a lot of teachers there that was seven, eight years into their careers. And they were just, they had just improved tremendously. And that stability really made it possible for them to both do the basics, you know, to teach the math. I mean, we didn't abandon that at all, but then also to have the confidence to do more and participate in these other things. To to your point about teachers, there's a uh, upward to a 47% decline in enrollment in teacher education yeah. schools and uh, upwards of 75% of all teachers in urban districts are leaving before their fifth year. So mm-hmm. yeah. they're leaving in droves and no one's coming. Uh, I, you know, it's just the, the stability that it was able to be, you were able to manage at Shamrock Gardens makes a difference. Uh, it's hugely important. And I think there was a whole period. I mean, this was during the period where some reformers poo-pooed stability. Mm-hmm. You know, you have Teach for America, which is lovely young people, but built-in instability. Two years. That's what you were expected to do. And while it's, you know, not you, you I mean, you always want a mix of teachers. You want experienced teachers. You like having young ones because they have enthusiasm and all. But if all you have are young beginning teachers and then they all leave and all you have is another group, I mean, you're just not going to get what kids need. That's not what children, that's not what children need, any children need. And I think the part of the point is what we were trying to say. There was also an idea that there was, I think, really one kind of education that went on in the suburbs and a different kind of education that went on at the low poverty, at the high poverty schools. And that somehow what the high poverty school kids needed was just the basics, the basics, the basics. Mm -hmm. Whereas these kids out in the suburbs needed all this other stuff. And the kids at a school like Shamrock needed all that other stuff too, probably actually more than the kids in the suburbs because their parents didn't take them to museums and, you know, travel necessarily on vacation and do all these things because they were trying to make a living. Uh, and I, uh, Louise Woods, who's just a, a real mentor of mine and, and an inspiration, she always says, you know, they don't, kids in these schools don't need different, they need more. Right. They need all the same stuff the other kids are getting, and then they need additional help. And I will say, and that costs money. There was also this whole thing, like somehow you could do it all if everybody just worked harder. I mean, one of the other things that was the case with our school was there were several years where we were the highest funded per pupil school in CMS, with the exception of a couple of the special needs schools. And because our principal knew how to spend that money where it mattered, I mean, you could throw money away. But he didn't throw it away. If you spend it effectively, we had small classes. We had other so kinds of supports. That supports the, the impact that a really effective principal can make on a school. Right, yeah. right. And again, this was an old-fashioned principal. He wasn't, I mean, I always laughed. His name was Mr. Wilson. Um, the teachers liked him, but he was, he, he empowered them. I always laughed and said, well, if Mr. Wilson went and just jumped off a cliff one day, 
the teachers wouldn't all follow him off the cliff like Lennings. They'd probably stand around and say, well, I don't know why Mr. Wilson did it. That's not like him, you know, because he had, they didn't just do what he said. He was, that wasn't the kind of principal he was. He empowered them. He supported them. And I think that that was just tremendously important because that was not the ma at the point, at that point, the idea was the principal comes in and, and, you know, yells at everybody so that they work harder and holds them all to these high standards and fires all the people. I mean, it was a very different model, but it was the model that helped build a stable school. Mm-hmm. And I think that that was very important. Was it was Garinger High School? Uh, did Shamrock Gardens feed into Garinger High School? Yeah, it fed Eastway Middle and it fed Garinger. And I will be absolutely frank and say my son did not go to Eastway and he did not go to Garinger because they faced tremendous challenges as well. But I did not see a path to being able to make the same kind of change at middle and high school that I could see at this particular elementary school. So, you know, that's just my son went to magnet schools. He went to Randolph Middle, which was an IB magnet. And then he went to Northwest School of the Arts, which was an arts magnet, which suited his artistic temperament. Uh, so, um, Louis so I think and that, Greg Asciutto are the co-chairs of uh, Charlotte East. Right. And and uh, Greg was just he just told me a couple of weeks ago that 52 percent of those families eligible to go to Garinger opt to go someplace else. Yeah. High schools, especially hard. And this is what we sort of talked about. Elementary school, again, one of the other reasons that we didn't worry so much about sending our son to elementary school is we are, you know, a well-off, you know, highly educated family. So anything he didn't get in elementary school, we knew we could provide. It didn't turn out he needed it because he got everything he needed pretty much there. So it wasn't that wasn't an issue. But when you get to high school, it's more difficult because it's much harder as a parent to be able to supplement at the level that you need to to get your kid. If if the school's not providing a child with everything they need, it's much more difficult as a parent to well, do that. Right. It's been said that, you know, elementary schools, you teach kids high school, you teach content. Mm-hmm. 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 Different, very different. Yeah, and of course, the kids—you're not as close to the kids either. I mean, that's the other challenge in elementary school. You know, mm-hmm. kids love you; they follow you around. They do. You know, I mean, you can have more of an effect. Now, I think at middle and high schools, parents also have a tremendous effect. But again, it is more in supplementing the core and less being able to affect the core. And I have to say, at Shamrock. I mean, the teachers were good. The core was fine. And what we really worked on was for, I mean, for, for students such as my son, who, you know, was just as prepared as you could possibly be. Uh, that, wasn't, that wasn't an issue. I mean, there were issues with trying to work with kids who didn't come with as much and needed, needed that more to build them up. But you could just work on supplementing and not worrying about that. High school, it's just more difficult. Did, did you encourage other families to stay? Oh, we did. We tried real hard. First year, we didn't get anybody. And it actually took, it took five years. About when my son was in fourth grade, all of a sudden we got, a, well, we'd gotten off the list so he couldn't automatically get out because we brought the test scores up. 
all of a sudden there was a group of families from Plaza Midwood who came. And and then that started even more change. Mm-hmm. It's remarkable, uh, the impact that parents can have. These days, it's seeming, it seems like uh, at least the tenor of civic engagement has shifted. You know, if you listen to the board meetings and uh, parents, a lot of yelling, a lot of, uh, a lot of anger, a lot of um, people who you know disagree with one another vehemently. Maybe it's politicized. I don't know. But is there is there an appropriate way that a parent can engage their school without being that that person you know that's in your face all the time? And well, again, I think I think you just have to support the people who are there. I mean, one of the great strengths of um, segregated education, African-American communities, was there was just this very close bond between teachers and communities. You know, the story was always if your teacher paddled you at school, because everybody got paddled back then. Uh, when you got home, your mother was waiting there, your dad was waiting there to paddle you again, because they already knew all about it. And, you know, there was this trust and connection with the sense that everybody had the same goals for the kids. So, um, did you just- make a statement that was in support of segregated schools? Well, I think the point is what you had was this connection between the teachers and the communities that was tremendously meaningful. Mm. And so in that sense, yes, and I mean, that was one of the great strengths. You know, one of the disadvantages was they were not funded equally. And that was, um, there were all sorts of things to talk about that, but that connection and part of the challenge is rebuilding that connection because I think over the years, it's not become as tight. You know, it has loosened the connection between schools and parents. And if schools and parents, if teachers and parents have different ideas about what kids should learn and how things should go, that does become much more challenging Mm -hmm. because I think parents are at their best I mean, they can have the most effect if they are able to support and build up what the school is trying to do. But of course, they have to, at that point, agree with what the school is trying to do. We were fortunate at Shamrock, you know, that that was the case. Or again, to advocate, um, for example, if you had a bad teacher in in an extracurricular, because there was another thing that happened with these high poverty schools, if you had a problematic art teacher, the principal didn't pay that much attention to that because the principal is trying to bring up test scores. And so you couldn't put your effort into trying to get a better art teacher just because you didn't have time. And so parents could do some of that agitating to help the principal, you know, achieve the goal of getting a better art teacher or a better music teacher or this kind of thing. But parents work best in a supportive role. When you're challenging Basically, I mean, you can get rid of a principal who's no good, which can be helpful if you really have a principal who does not care about the kids. But there's not a lot in confrontationally that you can do. So which is, you know, which is which is good and bad. Again, if you've got a situation where, you know, you are not satisfied with what school is wanting to do for your child, which does happen in communities. And if you, you know, if you were at a high poverty school where it seemed like everybody really didn't care about your kid or didn't imagine your kid could do stuff, you can definitely try to work to change that. But that's a much more difficult role mm-hmm. to take on. It's much more difficult to create improvement, 
I think, in that particular role because of the way the system is set up. Well, thank you, Pamela. We're going to take another short break to learn more, more about MECED and the services we provide to young people and why. When we return, we're going to discuss what we've learned today. Thank you. We'll see you in a few. Thank you. My experiences with MECED, uh, they put me in an internship at the hospital for two years. I think I, th I do think MECED has invested in me um, living my dream. They want the best for each and every one of their students. And it's like they won't go down without a fight. <laughs> so MECED means opportunity, family, friendship. I am a healthcare tech at Atrium Health University in the Maternity Center. Uh, career Pathways. We work with underserved high school students. We put them in internships at 135 different businesses and industries around Mecklenburg County. It's, it's a powerful economic mobility machine. The experience with Career Pathways, it made me more determined. That's how I got my job at Atrium because I volunteered for four years at the hospital. So it made me get connections and, and they said, I'll, I'll give you a call. With um, the students that we've had, the preparation that they had through Career Pathways was just exceptional. Honestly, I don't know what I would would, would do without Career Pathways. Like, I don't want to see it. Like, it's not. I don't know having someone to talk to and a shoulder to cry on. You know, different family. MECED's been around since 1991. We're here to serve young people in Mecklenburg County, and we're here uh, to make sure that they have the experiences, the knowledge, the skills that they are gonna need to thrive in life. Young people spend only 20% of their time in school. 80% of their life is spent outside of school. And we wanna make sure that we recognize that education doesn't just equal school. We learn in all different kinds of places and different ways. With after school, you're, you're hitting on academics, you're hitting on the things that they might not have during regular school. So like you have visual art, dance, theater, coding. They still get to do with their friends at school, with people who are just like them. Some of them don't even know they could dance. They didn't know, some of them don't know that they can draw. Um, so we try to bring those things out of them that they don't even know that they're capable of. But we've really enjoyed the support and appreciated the support from Charlotte Next and Mac Ed, not just in um, financial assistance, but also just giving us assistance and support along the way to get the programs up and running. Not every student has the opportunity to experience and, and participate in in-school or out-of-school activities. They have so many demands on themselves. And MECED opens that door to those students. Every student is different. And what MECED does a fabulous job of is meeting that student where they are. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Welcome back from recess to Let's Reinvent School with Ross Danis. Got your thinking cap on today? We're going to teach you how to reinvent the public education system. Want to raise your hand and join us on the show? Call in to 866-472-5788. Now back to the show. 
here again is Ross Danis. Well, thank you. Welcome back. Um, we're here not to talk about what's wrong with our schools, but rather what's possible. We're joined today by members of the Education Subcommittee of Reimagine America Project. Please welcome Deb Blackman, Kevin Woodson, Joanne Jenkins, Samantha Turner. So I just started by just throwing it out there, there to our uh, our panel, not panel, but respondents. What did we learn today? What have we learned? If I could go first, sure. I think what what was reaffirmed and what I've read, what I know, and just you've put emphasis on it, is the importance of moving past tolerance into acceptance into celebration. Because education really is about, for me, is a celebration of a human being becoming a full citizen in their community. And that was wiped out by everything that, you know, you talked about, you know, Ross in the beginning, you know, just getting it down to testing and stuff like that. And so I had a couple of memories that I just wanted to say, but, but to me, as far as what's possible is really spending time moving past tolerance because Pam, when you were talking, when you said that Shamrock was on the verge, it could have been closed Mm -hmm. very soon. We have so many schools right now in our particular school system that are there and have been there too long and yep. people have become tolerant of it. Mm-hmm. So so that was the first thing that I, I was thinking about. But Ross was talking about what the possibilities are, how to reimagine this thing. And I remember when I was sent off to university because at that age, education was going to be glorious and went to an upper class university and um all the upper class kind of educational things and then was thrown into a school system in Pittsburgh called the Hill District that you couldn't even see out the windows because of the soot from the pipes and, um, you know, the machines. And that started me on a path that I'm still on. You got it? Because all of a sudden, if you can't see the sun, then you don't know where to put the piano in the classroom so the sun doesn't shine on the children. And this school isn't even dealing with pianos. So I'm, I'm just kind of saying that what I heard was a real hope comes from acknowledging what is and having an ideal as to what it could be and not relenting, just not relenting, you know? And so when you started talking about uh, old school principal teachers that stayed past the first five minutes of being terrified, but mostly open and welcoming experiences with parents. And maybe that's where the possibility is going to be because I sent my son to a different school when I came here uh, because it was right after what happened in 1969 and I wasn't willing to put a four-year-old on a bus in the dark so that mm-hmm. somebody could be happy about black and white in the classroom. Right. But anyway, we, our sense in that school was that we were a critical part to this piece. You got it? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There was educate, there was the child, there was teacher and administrator, and then there was a parent. And we mm-hmm. represented the community that this child was going to be returned to. Mm-hmm. You got it? That he came from that, or she came from that, was in school now, and was going to be returned to it. And so we were on the school to be sure that things would be ready for both in education, but also within the community to receive this full person back. Mm -hmm. 
And then when it was time for him to go to middle school, he wanted to try being normal, whatever that means back then. You would, you know, we could talk all day. But anyway, it was almost like the door was shut on parent involvement. And I remember being very confused by that. It was a public school, middle school. And it was just like, don't, don't even, you know, we don't need you. We, we've got this. And so I guess I just want to say spending time helping people move past tolerance, which another word is hopelessness to the celebration of what we could have. And every time we can add something to it, like the garden, like you were describing, mm-hmm. plant something. You got mm-hmm. it. We can't do it overnight, but just don't be willing to just not do something. Right. That's what and I, I. And I would answer that by saying yes, and that's one another achievement that we had was being able to involve a lot of the existing parents because with a little more space and a little more, a uh, few more resources, we could create things. I mean, our garden was basically built by our Latino parents, all of whom were construction workers and gardeners. And so I couldn't build a garden, but they could come in. That was something they could come in and use their skills and do something for the school. So, I mean, parents have all different kinds of skills. And so we work very hard to create opportunities for parents to come in and do things that they could do. And uh, by the time you know, over a few years, I mean, parental involvement just shot up. We had dinners for parents. We brought people together again, just to get people to come to the school. Cause we realized one of the things, cause this was a little bit different kind of a community. It was a more fragmented community. So kids knew each other, but the parents didn't know each other, even if they lived just up the street. And so we wanted to try to create some of those connections. So that's, it's, it's just so much more than just the school. I mean, it really has to be the whole community all in, in lots of ways, That's which so is what true. we've gotten away from. So true. I love to hear words like celebration and joy and tolerance and gardens. Uh, in fact, every time I hear somebody use that metaphor, like I'm in the trenches, I'm working in the trenches. I'm like, can we, can we retire that and just say you're working in a garden? We're trying to grow things for God's sakes. So how about you, Kevin? Samantha, Deb? Well, I'll try to be brief because I know we're coming up on the top of the hour. Um, The key thing that I learned is that there's still uh, people that are concerned about improving schools. And and I take that as a a reinforcement of that we can achieve anything we want to if we put our minds to it. Uh, one of the things that, you know, we're not here to problem solve or to identify problems, but maybe talk about possibilities. Um, you know, how can we reconnect with neighborhoods, uh, create that sense of neighborhood where one uh, child looks out for another child, not to prove that they are better than, which I believe the current testing system does, is it creates this hierarchy of, you know, my score is this score and, and I'm better than you but know that we as a community are growing. Uh, I like the idea of the, com- the community garden. Um, one of the things that I observe is uh, a- as we've moved through uh, this, uh, the COVID era is people talk about job creation and a lot of the jobs are totally different than the jobs that, that I aspire to when I was coming out of school. 
or, or, or in, in school? And, and how do we create the visions that says, yeah, I, I want to achieve this. And the, and the way that I can achieve it is going through the school system. Um, you know, a lot of folks talk about the types of jobs that are available are, uh, you know, we call Mac McDonald's jobs. But then again, I look at some of the folks. There's a guy that I know, uh, Junior Bridgman, who was a basketball player and had a mediocre NBA career. Now he's the second largest minority owner of Wendy's in the country. And he learned that by the fact that when he was in, in college, he had to have a secondary job. So he went and worked at Wendy's and found out that there was a place for him there and that he can create the life that he wants by following through the information that he learned through what some people might say were his struggles. But for many of us, it's just, that's just what you did. So, you know, I, I think there's a possibility out there. We just have to create or help the students create the visions that, that and, and supply them with the tools to get them to move toward a better, uh, a better neighborhood. Anyone else want to chime in? Sure. Um, so I think I, I relearned something because we've been so focused on how to deal with the inequities in, of today that we're not focused on what we really need in the schools, which is that idea of joy and interest from, from the kids. We're just hoping they survive right now. But joy and interest is so important. And uh, something that I imagine would help that is if each child was was um, graded or valued by their improvement, not a test score. Um, I think what would bring joy into poorer communities is uh, upgrading the standards of the buildings and equipment and furniture and sports facilities, et cetera, to, to be on uh, equal ground with those schools that are in uh, the middle of more affluent communities. That would bring, you know, what message would that send to those children that the community invests in that school that way? I mean, that would be joyful and that would be welcoming. Uh, we need them to feel welcome, not not just not just okay. We want them to be welcome and joyful. Um, so, uh, thank you for bringing back that notion of joy in school. That's what they need, and we have to give that to them. Joy, that is the centerpiece of this entire hour. Deb, anything? Deb, Deb's not here anymore. She she had to something happened with the internet. But, you know, it's something that else you just said, and I think I heard it from you, Samantha, and I definitely heard it from you, Kevin, well, the whole thing. Like, what is that X factor that means goes from nourish to flourish? You got it? Both mm -hmm. of them are wonderful. And when I heard you say, Pam, that we finally had people who wanted to be there, started with the kids all the way up, you know, but people want, you know, that's, those are two nice, if we're going to create an architecture, nourish, and flourish, both are positive. And each unit, each neighborhood is very unique and each school culture is unique. And to be able to take that back from some standardized template, you know, that, that a cookie cutter mm -hmm. thing that, but that means that you have been awakened or something's been stirred up in you to not just tolerate, you know, because you're just trying to get through it. You know, an education is not something that you get through. It's 
it's more life giving than that. Uh, language I'm hearing is nourish to flourish. People still care about improving schools, celebrations, tolerance, gardens, joy. Um, I'm inspired, and this hour it has flown by, actually. I want to thank all of you, particularly Pamela Grundy. Um, how, how can folks purchase color and character? Uh, well, it's available on Amazon. You can go to the website, uh, and that gets at some of these things as well, how a historically black high school that was a fabulous school became a remarkably integrated school, and then the challenges it faced during uh, resegregation. So, um, yeah, you can do that or just look up color and character and go to my website and see how there's a lot of stuff about that as well. So thank you so much. Um, thank you all. We have uh, 13 episodes. This is the first of 13. Next week, we'll be joined by Professor James Guthrie, who you're going to find to be ex extraordinary as an educator. And uh, he's going to be talking about what's possible and why. Until then, you're listening to Let's Reinvent School. I'm your host, Ross Dennis. Uh, if you want to know more about MechEd, follow us on the web at www.meched, Facebook and Twitter. Thank you all very much. Thank you for listening to Let's Reinvent School. Tune in next week as we give you some more great insight into the state of the public education system. Until next week, class dismissed.